0: episode. When you go after what you want and you get it, you can have organic happiness. When you go after what you want and you don't get it, you can have synthetic happiness. But when you don't go after what you want and you just are paralyzed by it, so if you go, if you get what you want, you you don't get what you want and you create something else you find happiness through through that but when you don't go after what you want you're left in a state of regret so really the only way to be unhappy is to not go after something Hmm. you go after it and you're successful yay you go after it you're unsuccessful you regroup and figure something else out you're not going to die of heartbreak is basically what i'm trying to say we metabolize our emotions very quickly. The only one that's very difficult and not impossible to metabolize is regret mm-hmm. and not doing something. because There's no alternative.
1: Welcome to the Modern Author Podcast. Your host, Eric Custer. Eric Custer.
2: Do not compromise until you're 40. Take risks. This wisdom was something that I think all of us on our conversation with Debbie really appreciated. You know, I think uh, Debbie is someone who really has built an entire career on being uncompromising. She's the host of uh, really one of the top podcast, Out There Design Matters. She's the author of multiple books. And I think her story is one that really has been about like being uncompromising. And that has really helped her establish herself as such a powerful voice for design, for sort of thinking differently about the importance of design in the world, and really just fostering other designers and creators in this world. We had a fascinating conversation talking a lot about how she has learned how to really listen, to listen to feedback, to listen to her audience, to listen into the market and has used that to really keep herself growing. She talks about every time she does something, trying to think how she can go one notch better, one notch more, one notch beyond that one. And, and remember, you know, if you do something and everyone loves it, have you really pushed yourself enough? She talks about if you make something and nobody doesn't like it, Does not mean you really push yourself hard enough? Which I think is really a good insight to remember that putting work out in the world, especially if we are pushing the envelope on things, it may ruffle some feathers and that's the nature of part of it. Um, But you take that criticism, you build on it, you use it to continue to improve and that really is where things get great. Even as someone in her own journey talks about how she's become such an incredible interviewer, it's because she listened to herself, she got better, and today uh, Design Matters has really become such a leading force. We talked to her actually right at the heart of being in the revision phase of her own book and how that's been like, how she's going through it, what she's thinking about in it. And I think as a creator, it's oftentimes fun to hear that sort of inside experience about how we're wrestling through it, how we're working on it, and how we grow along the way. But but I think important to know is that like looking for your opportunity to really continue to advance personally and also push the conversation forward is, is incredibly powerful. Debbie Millman is such a force for good, and I think you're going to really enjoy the conversation. She made me think a lot about how we all push ourselves to drive those emotional responses in others and how we can think about whenever we're creating something, how are we going to make someone feel? And that's what matters uh, in today. So Debbie Millman, enjoy the conversation. Excited to have her joining us. We have to start what what first introduced me to you and has, has led me to introduce you to hundreds and hundreds of my students since. This idea about the difference between courage and confidence and why so many people when starting things out, this is a group of hundreds of authors that are in this community that are starting books here, and you got to have more confidence, you got to have more confidence, and you have a very different message for people starting something new, learning something that I find to be so inspiring. Share a little bit about your insights about the difference between sort of being more, being more confident versus this idea of courage.
0: So how many people here know how to ride a bicycle? Raise your hand. Okay. So it looks like everybody, 100%. Did anybody just start on their bicycle and w- were you able to just ride without falling once, ever?
1: Mm-mm.
0: Mm-mm. So if we can't ride a bicycle without falling, why do we think we could do anything without falling? It's really quite unrealistic to think that we could do anything great the first time we try it but now that that you all know how to ride a bicycle and probably have for several years when you get on your bicycle do you feel nervous about falling no you don't feel nervous about co- falling you all have bicycle confidence for those of you that drive when you were first learning to drive did you were you nervous during your driver's test yeah we were you hoping you'd pass yeah. <laughs> So now how many times when you get into your car, are you nervous before you turn on the ignition? Very unlikely, unless you've just been in an accident or got a ticket. And so you all have car confidence. Likely, if you're able-bodied, you also have bathroom confidence. You know, you weren't <laughs> yes. born with bathroom confidence. So, So the question about confidence versus courage really comes from a conversation that I had with one of my guests after... Um, a Design Matters interview where she saw a stack of books about confidence on my desk in my office at the School of Visual Arts and looked at them and scoffed and said that she thought that confidence was overrated. And the primary reason I had the books was because they were sent to me for potential interviews on Design Matters. But the reason that I was keeping them was because to me, knowing how to manifest confidence was like the holy grail and so immediately i asked her why she thought confidence was so overrated and she felt that it was really impossible to have any confidence whenever you're trying anything new Mm -hmm. and what was much more important was the notion of courage of taking that first step into the unknown into whether or not you would be able to do this thing that you wanted to do. And and I thought about it a lot. And I tried for about a year to come up with my own definition of confidence so that I could share that with my students and then they could calibrate their own sort of relationship with wanting this thing and and i decided that confidence is essentially the successful repetition of any endeavor mm. that's how you build confidence mm. you build it by doing it over and over again to a point where it becomes either effortless or if it isn't effortless you can predict the outcome with fairly good odds. And so even for basketball players or baseball players, they know what it takes to have a good average of Mm -hmm. success. Mm -hmm. For any sport, for any athlete, whether it be uh, football, baseball, soccer, the number of times you don't score is actually higher than the number of times that you do. There's no one in recorded athletic history that has an average scoring that's higher than the average not scoring. Hmm. So the pressure that we put on ourselves to do something with confidence when we haven't built up a history of success at having already done it is just something that is... Unrealistic and the pressure that we put on ourselves to do that could be really damaging in your effort to try to do something that you haven't done before. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so, how how do you take that? Again, this is a group of, of first time authors, most of the time working on this first step here. You've now done this month. I, we're, we're all, every month is Nano Remo actually for us. <laughs> so, so it feels like every month we're trying to write as many words as we can. So the goal here of the community, there's about 400 of us, is to finish a draft in about five months. And so every month is, that pressure mounts every month here. So how do you, in your own life, in your own, your own journey as an author and a creator, how do you move past that first step? Because I think it's the right thing here, that courage to try something to do it that then compounds. How do you move past those moments of stuckedness or fear or doubt that kind of creeps in when you start anything?
0: I'm reading, I'm interviewing Seth Godin tomorrow and I'm reading his new book called The Practice, mm-hmm. which is, it has a kind of unusual subtitle because it feels very old school. It's called The Practice, colon, Shipping Creative Work.
1: Mm-hmm. But what
0: he means by shipping is actually sharing. Mm-hmm. Um and I would really recommend that you read it. You can get it on Kindle for 12 bucks, mm-hmm. but it really is all about this. His, one of his thesis, theses is that there's no such thing as writer's block. Now I don't know if that's true or not because I've suffered from it, right. but what I've just heard when I've had, I, so I've been struggling with a book that is due in four weeks. I had to get it to my publisher. I had a year extension and this is it. If I don't submit it, I'm probably going to have to pay back the entire advance and, you know, walk away from HarperCollins in shame. But what I realized was the writer's block was really coming from not wanting to write the book. Hmm. Not, I could do plenty of other things. I wasn't having paralysis in, in, I wasn't having paralysis in making visual stories. I wasn't having paralysis in pretty much anything else. But here I was having this paralysis in in, in writing this book and I do talk quite a lot about you've probably already heard my saying that busy is a decision and I think that procrastination is one too because we are we tend to do the things that we want to do and because I know what that means for me mm-hmm. the question after eight months of dormancy in this extension where I was essentially doing pretty much as little as possible was the idea that maybe I didn't really want to do it.
1: Interesting.
0: And and then I realized I didn't want to do it. And hmm. I was talking to my wife and I'm like, should I give back the advance? Should I just tell them I don't want to do it? And she... And I had a long talk about it. And we both felt that because it's a book about design matters Mm -hmm. and because it is 15 years of celebrating this thing that I created from nothing Mm -hmm. as a real Hail Mary with creativity in my life, that that I owed it to myself to do it. And so slowly but surely I've ramped up and now I'm working on it probably eight or nine hours a day. Hmm. And furiously trying to finish, (laughs) not sure if I will, freaking out about it. But just acknowledging that was, acknowledging that I didn't really wanna do it. And then you make the decision, well, I don't really wanna do this, Mm -hmm. but I really think I should do this. And so I'm gonna make that decision to do it anyway, even Mm -hmm. though I don't feel like doing it. Because it's still like a bit drudgery. I've recognized about myself that I don't ever really like to do the same thing twice. Yeah. And so the idea of going through these interviews that I've already done and trying to figure something out, like it just, it's not as exciting to me as making something fresh and making Mm -hmm. something, but I am doing it Mm -hmm. and I'm trying to do it now as best as I can. Mm -hmm. But I do think that if you are procrastinating for a really long time, Mm -hmm. that should signal some sense of being really not wanting to do this thing. But the other thing I'm learning from Seth Godin, and it's really an interesting book because it's very much about what it means to be a professional writer or -hmm. what it means to be a hack or a professional artist and a hack. Mm -hmm. And and a hack is somebody that's doing something to constantly fulfill the social media presence and the the people pleasing and all of that. But being a writer means sitting down and doing it every day, regardless of the outcome. Mm -hmm. And so that's also something that I think is really important to think about. Why are you writing this? Are you writing Mm -hmm. this to try to write a bestseller? Are you writing this to speak your truth? Are you writing this to get back at an X? Are you writing this to compete with others? What is the sense of creativity? Where is that coming from? And again, a lot of this is Seth. I'm not... I'm not really doing it justice, but (laughs) it's really turned my head upside down a lot about the lies I tell myself about why I'm not doing the things that I'm doing.
2: Yeah. We talk a lot in the very first week of the experience about Nira Yal's book, Indistractable. And he talks a lot about the neuroscience, traction and distraction. And it is really fascinating. I think oftentimes these things come from fear and naming it and talking about it and having a shared Mm -hmm. language is a really important thing. And I think in part of, again, in Seth's sort of message of having a safe community to talk about is probably one of the biggest things as a creator and as a creative, you talking with your wife, that idea to have the shared language and the shared sort of support is really powerful whenever we're undertaking anything.
0: Yeah, I do think that intention is really important and and knowing why you're trying to do something and what you want the result to be. Is the result creating something from nothing that's magical? Mm -hmm. Is it creating something that makes you famous? Is Mm -hmm. it creating something that resonates with the world? All of those things are are super important in understanding what your criteria for success is.
2: Yeah, yeah, it's really powerful. So one of the things that I also love in, in your world is you've been able to take this interest and passion and thoughtfulness about design and apply it in multiple different areas. And you talk about, you teach about, you know, designing your life. I want to ask you a little question for this group of authors and creators. We've got mostly authors, but some people doing podcasts, audio shows, courses. How do you think about designing a book or a creation experience as something for your audience? Because design is about that empathy with other people. How do you design a book or use these principles to design a book for the reader at the end of the day?
0: Well, that's a great question. And I would love to be able to give you a good answer, but <laughs> I've done so. I've done three very different kinds of books. Mm-hmm. The books that that I've created. So I've done two textbooks. Mm-hmm. So uh, Brand Think Essential Principles of Graphic Design mm-hmm. and Brand Bible. Those mm-hmm. are really books for students mm-hmm. to help teach them, and those books were. Those were bears. Those really were bears to do. I did a lot of interviews. I had to get a lot of photographs, a lot of permissions. You end up being, you feel like you're end up ending up being an administrator as a so <laughs> it, my first I book. Probably same won't, thing. Hard, I don't think I would sign up to do another one quite like that again. Yeah. But it's nice to have done them. Mm-hmm. And then I've done two books of interviews that have extended the ethos of Design Matters. Mm-hmm. One, How to Think Like a Great Graphic Designer, which mm-hmm. is a cheeky title because there's no one way to think and Brand Thinking and Other Noble Pursuits. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And aside from Bill Moggridge, who passed away, all of the interviews in Brand Thinking were specifically done to be included in a book. They were Mm -hmm. not for the podcast.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. Um, And I learned that because in creating... Had to think like a great graphic designer, it was my first book. I didn't know what I was doing, I'd gotten some advice from various people, and what I realized was um, that it would be easier to just send emails out to people and <laughs> questions that way. And then, when I and but I was also doing some interviews in person,
1: mm-hmm.
0: and the interviews in person were much better, much, mm-hmm. much more intimate. Mm-hmm. The emails were terrible. And, <laughs> and for the most part, other than maybe one or two people that I was really intimidated at that time in my life to actually really request a meeting with, I, I asked everybody that I had done email interviews with if I could redo them as interviews in person. The best case being Michael Beirut, which I actually write about in the intro to his interview because when I first sent it out and it was the email, I, one of the questions was, what is your first creative memory? And his response was, I don't know. Whereas <laughs> if I was in person, come up with something. Yeah, you know? try, give me something. And, and then other, do you have a favorite typeface or something and the answers were no and mm-hmm. yes. And they were monosyllabic. And I was like, I can't use this. Right. And so right. then I ended up writing him back and saying, hey, Michael, you know, can we do this in person? This isn't quite the kind of juicy detail I was hoping for. And then we ended up meeting and then over over breakfast one morning, he revealed so much about himself that my editor was... Unsure about how he would feel if this really was indeed published in the book. He talked about his mm-hmm. OCD and he talked about all kinds of crazy stuff, but not crazy in a bad way, just crazy in a human way, yeah, but
2: vulnerable. But definitely right.
0: super vulnerable and super, super human. Mm-hmm. And I wrote him and I said, My editor is not sure about this. Are you sure you want this out there with mm-hmm. the world? And he was like, Oh, if I said it, it stays. So that really taught me that the very best interviews happen face-to-face Ida, which has been hard with COVID. Um, And then the other two books um, were books of visual essays and poems. Mm -hmm. And those were very solitary. And the first one was done in a rush because I had pitched that book to FNW Media, Mm -hmm. never, ever thinking that they'd buy it um but then they did mm-hmm. and so then i had about a year to put this book together but mm-hmm. i had i pitched it as one of the goals that i'd had in my five year plan that i had created in Milton Glaser's class and one was to have a book of illustrated huh. essays and so i pitched it not having done any illustrated essays in over probably 10 or 15 years hmm. And I included one as an example, but when I pitched the book, but it was terrible. Mm-hmm. Nevertheless, they bought this book and then I had to go into high gear and start making art again after <laughs> I not made art in a really long time. And so after a year of doing that, I, my chops really came back. Mm-hmm. And so I started redoing them. Hmm. And finally mm-hmm. the publisher cut me off. They were like, no, this is it. This is your deadline. Hmm. No more redos. But then I was so worried about losing my chops that I volunteered because F&W at the time also owned print magazine. I offered them a free column hmm. that I would do every month, which would be another visual essay. Oh, that's cool. And mostly I did that because I wanted to force myself to do one every month. Hmm. And I did. And once I give myself a goal, I'm very determined mm-hmm. to keep it. Hmm. And at the end of about three years, the publisher of F&W came back to me and said, some of these essays really should be in a book. Huh. So, so pick, maybe we should make one. And so that became my second book. So essentially that book was done before I started it, hmm. because all I had to do were like the table of contents and the intro and right. the end papers and one new poem greatest hits plus one so they were very different than what right. i'm doing now and, right. and having doing a book like i'm doing now is it's a monster it really is mm. because it's a it's a history of the podcast from 2005. wow i have all this like low res ephemera which is good mm-hmm. i have hundreds and hundreds of, of interviews that i've had to edit and now I have to condense and now I have to organize and everything is transcribed, thank God. I've picked the photos that I want to use, some of which I own, some of which I have to get permissions for, which is another mm-hmm. nightmare. And I just hired Paul, the great book designer, to mm-hmm. design the book. And, mm-hmm. and he's going to help me shape it. So, sure. you know, to answer your question, this is one where I really need a lot. It, this is a village. This one mm-hmm. needs a village.
2: Yeah, yeah. I think that's a lot of what Any people oftentimes think of the creator as the solitary person. And yet I I do think so much of this is that village effect behind it. How do you deal with you've been very open with some of the early feedback on some of your work that how getting negative feedback can throw you off? And I think for this community of people who are creating things and may get that negative feedback, how do you push through critiques, critical feedback, and things like that to continue that creation? Because you're right, once you've got confidence or that courage, then you got to keep creating to build confidence. How do you push through negative feedback?
0: So, aside from how we feel about J.K. Rowling, the person, mm-hmm. right now, right, I think most people on the planet really liked Harry Potter, right? Harry right. Potter novels, right? Yeah, it was rejected from seven publishers. <laughs>
1: That's right.
0: Does does it being accepted by Scholastic make it any better? Mm. Then the so this comes back to and this I learned from Seth Godin again mm-hmm. in bringing this book, and i didn't I didn't know that she'd have that failure or that rejection before, and it's not just her does it make it any less good mm. if somebody doesn't like it, so I think that this goes back to how much do you want it to live
1: mm-hmm.
0: and if mm. you do, how else can you bring it to life
1: mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. because it's- there's always going to be rejection always. Mm-hmm. and I think that we should expect to be rejected.
1: Mm-hmm. I do, all the time. Yep.
0: I write to people, and I get one of two responses generally when I write to people about being on the podcast. I get yeses
1: mm-hmm. or nothing. <laughs> right, right.
0: Crickets. So people don't generally want to say no. The only person in recent history that's actually said no With Cindy Sherman, and I really respect that. And she Mm -hmm. was like, "No, I'm just tired of hearing myself talk." So that that was, but it's never people people just they ignore you, they don't call you back, they don't turn your emails. That's that's the way it is. That is Mm -hmm. just the way it is for everyone. And people have asked me numerous times. So much so that I really had to find an answer. Because mm-hmm. for a long time, I was like, I don't know. How did I persevere in the face of so much rejection? Right. Talking about decades. And ultimately, what I've decided and what I really, truly believe is that my hope for something more was one notch bigger than my shame at all the failure.
2: Interesting. Yeah. Like,
0: there was so much shame, so much rejection, embarrassment, humiliation. One notch. But it was one... One notch of hope more that made me feel like I'm just going to keep trying, just going to keep trying. Now, it doesn't always, it's not always healthy in certain things Mm -hmm. like relationships. I'm very rarely ever the one to leave. Um, (laughs) I'm not married, so hopefully we're in good net in this realm. I I have been very determined, and that determination, I think, is bigger than my sense of shame and humiliation. Hmm.
2: I love that. that's, a, that's And I think it's I think it's kind of that yin and yang, that sort of one touch above. You don't need to be hyper-confident. You just need to like have that one notch above. And I think that's a, right. it's powerful. So yes. you've been super gracious here. I, I want to, I know you've got a book to write here, so we don't want to take too much time, but I have, I have one more quick question that I wanted to run through with you. And I'm Linda happy here.
0: to stay for a few other questions if people have questions. I appreciate
2: it. You talk about the podcast, which has become this incredible behemoth that as you described was bigger than your wildest dreams here. But you've talked about over your career, that was a moment for you to get out of a creative slump. You've been a content creator and yet you had to unslump yourself, which people like how could Debbie be in slumps? It happens and it's a thing. How do you encourage people to get out of slumps and how do you pick what to can get you out of slumps and those sorts of things, where people have it, whatever, whether it's in a project or in just your general creative life?
0: Try to do something that you've never done before. How many times Hmm. do we really do that now? Yeah. How many times do we actually try to do something? That we have zero experience in,
1: mm-hmm. and that was
0: the podcast. I had no experience. I hung around my radio station at college just to meet boys. <laughs> uh, I, I yeah, and I how good that went. So I think that with Design Matters, there was I had zero expectation.
2: Right, That's zero great.
0: expectation. That's great. And at the time, I had gone through all of that previous. The previous rejection and failure, and then suddenly found my stride as a branding consultant, a brand Mm -hmm. designer, and was really intoxicated by that success because it was the Mm -hmm. first time I'd ever experienced it.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: And I was like, wow, this this is amazing. And I'm really good at something. So I just want to do this thing that I'm good at Mm -hmm. all the time. Mm
1: -hmm. I don't want
0: to do anything else. I just want to do this thing that I'm good at. Hmm. I gave up all the sort of side ancillary projects, the painting, the drawing, the writing, all of that, just to do this thing, because I was getting this sort of constant reassurance and feedback that I was worthy and I was successful and I was making money and I was doing all these things that I'd never done before and never dreamed were possible. But uh, they were all commercial.
1: Hmm.
0: And so after about eight years or so, what happened to that girl that just wanted to make things? What happened to that person who wanted to be a writer and a painter and musician and where did she go? Mm -hmm. And so when I got this accidental call from this fledgling internet radio network, about doing a show, a radio show, Mm because they were, I thought they were offering me a job, they were actually offering me an opportunity to pay them to be my producer.
2: (laughs) Let us pay you to do something for us. It's a total
0: vanity project. I still felt like, sounds like it could be fun, it sounds Mm -hmm. creative, it sounds different. They wanted me to do it on branding, and I was like, "Mm, now I wanna do it on design. Mm -hmm. And and then ultimately they left, they let me, and I did 100 episodes over four years with them, Mm And from 2005 to 2009, and then I brought it to Design Observer,
1: mm-hmm. and I
0: was there up until recently, up until about a month ago. Wow. And now I've recently joined the TED Audio Collective. So, you know, I'm definitely not that hit-it-out-of-the-gate, first-time best-selling author. No, that's not me.
2: Compounding takes time, right? Fifteen years fifteen years overnight success oftentimes that people don't realize. What's your group of the, the
0: actor that was like, oh yeah, my my overnight success came after twenty five years. <laughs> I wanted to ask, what is your number one advice for designing our lives? Try not to compromise until you're 40. Try to take risks as often as possible. It's it comes back to that. I don't feel like I'm gonna be successful. So There's a great TED talk by Dan Gilbert called The Surprising Science of Happiness. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've seen it. Really worth seeing. Yes. And in it, he talks about organic happiness. So like when something happens to us and we feel excited about it. And then he talks about synthetic happiness. And synthetic happiness is when over time we realize that what we have is... Meant to be a thing, but that that terrible day for me back in May of 2003. If that hadn't happened, then you know all these other great things in my life wouldn't have happened. So that's sort of synthetic happiness. So when you go after what you want and you get it, you can have organic happiness. Mm. When you go after what you want and you don't get it, you can have synthetic happiness. Mm. But when you don't go after what you want and You just are paralyzed by it. So if you go, if you get what you want, you don't get what you want and you create something else, you find happiness through that. But when you don't go after what you want, you're left in a state of regret. Hmm. So really the only way to be unhappy is to not go after something. Hmm. You go after it and you're successful, yay. You go after it, you're unsuccessful, you regroup and figure something else out. You're not gonna die of heartbreak is basically what I'm trying to say. Mm. We metabolize our emotions very quickly. The only one that's very difficult and not impossible to metabolize is regret and yeah. not doing something because there's no alternative.
2: I got chills when you said that. That was a powerful one there. Wow. this, uh, <laughs> this It's a great, that was a great question. That was amazing. It's a
0: ten, Dan Gilbert, The Surprising Science of Happiness, I think. Mm-hmm. It's really I just, old. It's I posted the TED link in there. And yeah, it's it, TED from, on TED.com.
2: It's an amazing one for sure. It is certainly an amazing one. Elon, do you want to ask one last question here before we uh, let, you know, let Debbie, uh, Debbie Graces here? Uh, Ilan, do you want to ask your question?
0: Absolutely. Uh, thank you, Debbie, again, for your time. It's been so amazing learning from you. And so my question was, what is the balance between doing what you're scared of or have no experience in versus what you feel like you're an expert in? Where does the true courage lie? Great question. So in Seth's book, he mentions Chip Kidd, the book designer which really surprised me because Chip is one of my dearest friends. He's like my brother. So, of course, I I photographed it and sent it to him. And he talks about how Chip is such a successful book designer. One of the reasons is because he has great clients. Hmm. And when I showed it to Chip, he said, oh, but I also never quit my day job. Hmm. But And I thought that was such a great comment that Chip made because, yes, you can create – Wonderful self-generated work and get some accolades from it while you're experimenting. Still have mm-hmm. something that you can depend on, so that you feel a little bit more secure and a little bit safer. Love that. Thank you. Thank Thanks so much. You.
2: Any last words of wisdom for this group as they're going out and creating? Uh, hopefully, in 2021, we're going to have some books that'll show up for you that you've helped inspired from this community. Any kind of uh, words of wisdom before they go off and create and, uh, and make magic? It's
0: always so interesting to me when I speak to artists and writers about confidence, because you guys have already made like the hardest decision of your lives to pursue something with absolutely no guarantee of success. Mm-hmm. None. That's fucking courage. <laughs> you're not accountants, you're not lawyers. You're not graduating from school with job offers from big law firms and accounting firms. You're fucking trying to make art. That's the biggest courageous act you could ever make. Mm. Mm. You should revel in that
2: that's amazing Debbie you are amazing I you know big props on that one for everyone here and you and that is the perfect send off for us here as we go forth and multiply and we'll be right along cheering you alongside as you're creating over these next two months here on your book we'll be doing the same and uh, again thank you so much for all that you do